Our text this morning is found in Mark's Gospel, and I'm going to read it from chapter 12, and I'm going to read verse 28 to 34, though I will be centering particularly on a a briefer text, but it's in these verses. 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So this morning, those who are here with us regularly, you'll recognize that we're turning to one of the readings that Manuel based his sermon on a few weeks ago. And in his sermon, he dealt with the subject of the use of our mind based upon The first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and specifically with all your mind and with all your strength. Now in this sermon, we are going to think together about Jesus' answer to one of the most important questions that has ever been asked. It is the question asked by one of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And this is the question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, of a series of questions asked by some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, 
at the start of their questions, we see men who are quite confident that they can trick Jesus by their questions. They think that by a few cunning questions, they can destroy the common people's confidence in Jesus as a teacher. And that's what they wanted to do. The first question was intended to bring Jesus into trouble with either the common people who listened to him and enjoyed hearing him preach, or the government authorities. And their thinking was this, whatever Jesus answered would get him into trouble. They asked this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, if he answered yes, the common people would be upset because they didn't really want to do that. But if he answered no, the Roman government would arrest him as an enemy of Rome. Now, they didn't mind which answer he gave. It would be trouble in either case. But Jesus had a completely different answer. Here's an answer that nobody possibly could find fault with. It was an answer that nobody had thought of. But as soon as they heard it, they knew that's the right answer. And they knew they'd failed to trick Jesus. And they were simply amazed at his heavenly wisdom. Yes, they knew they had failed. But that didn't stop other religious leaders trying to do the same thing in a different way. Now, these other religious leaders, their beliefs were different from the Pharisees who asked that question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The Pharisees were well known for their strict moral lives and their ability to understand and to explain the law of Moses. And one of the particular things that they stressed was the importance of the resurrection. They believed in a resurrection. They believed that one day there would be a judgment day. And on that day, there would be a resurrection from the dead. They believed that. And they taught that. They also believed that angels really existed. On the other hand, this other group, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in either of these things. See, if you like to put it this way, the scribes and the Pharisees were like the people today who take seriously God's word. But they didn't really take it seriously, but they thought they did. 
They certainly believe what God's word said, but they didn't really understand it as they should. But the Sadducees were like some of the people today who say, well, you, you can believe parts of the Bible, but there's other parts. You can't believe that. I mean, you don't believe in resurrections. That can't happen. And you don't believe in angels. You can't see an angel. It's just a story. And you've got them in the church today. Tragedy. But that is the case. Now, the Sadducees' question was intended to make the resurrection sound ridiculous. They began by quoting the law of Moses. If a man's brother dies, leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. That's the text. That's their text. And then they tell this ridiculous story about a woman married to a man who had six brothers. So when her first husband dies, his elder brother marries her. And would you believe it? This happens six times. Each brother she marries dies. And she goes on to marry the next one. This means that she was actually married to each of the seven brothers, one after the other. And then they ask their ridiculous question, which they really think, this is Jesus, he won't have an answer for this. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? It's a ridiculous story, and it's a ridiculous question. But the Sadducees are quite sure Jesus won't be able to give a satisfactory answer. But once again, we see the glory and the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And he shows them just how wrong their thinking is. And he does it as he shows them their ignorance both of the Scriptures and the power of God. I don't know if you noticed, but they were talking about the resurrection. Jesus talks about the resurrection, but Jesus also talks about angels. And that was something they denied. They were quite happy to use this bit about the resurrection to try and trick Jesus, but they didn't believe in the resurrection, nor did they believe in angels. But Jesus shows their problem was they didn't know the scriptures. They didn't understand the scriptures. And they thought they could destroy the people's confidence in Jesus by a stupid question. And Jesus exposes both their ignorance of God's word and his almighty power. Now, at least one teacher of the law who was present at that time was amazed by Jesus' reply. He could see that was a brilliant reply. And Mark tells us, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, 
he asked Jesus, and this is the great, really important question we must think about this morning. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this question was different from the other two because this was a serious, a sincere question, and Jesus gives it a serious and sincere answer. He immediately replied, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Now, once again, Jesus' answer shows how well he deserved his reputation. The reputation that said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. And I want you to notice three things about his reply that earned him this reputation. Firstly, I want you to notice that Jesus' reply was an extremely simple one. It was not the kind of reply that the religious teachers expected. These religious teachers, they had carefully studied God's law. And they had counted no less than 613 different laws in the Bible. And they divided them into two groups. The first group of 248 were positive commands. And the second group of 365 were negative commands. And they then further divided these positive and negative commands into weighty and light matters of the law. And they probably thought, oh, Jesus won't know anything about that. But it's quite clear Jesus did know. You may remember at one point in his ministry, he accused the Pharisees of neglecting, the Pharisees neglecting, the weightier matters of the law. Listen to what he said. He said, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now the teachers, they were agreed about the division of the law into positive 
and negative commands. But they didn't agree as to which laws were the weighty ones and which were the light ones. Now, we don't really know how they expected Jesus to answer this question. But we can be sure that most of them were ready to argue and then quote some other learned rabbi, Rabbi Benjamin, Rabbi Halil, who said this or said that. And the amazing thing about Jesus' answer was it was so simple and obviously the right answer. Jesus simply repeated God's word. And he repeated part of God's word that every Jew was supposed to recite twice a day. Now, why should the Jews be expected to repeat these words twice a day? Simply because they were recognized as the most important words in God's book. <sighs> Listen to them again and think about them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The God of Israel is the only true God. And he is your God. He is your God. This means you must love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. No one is greater than God, so this must be the most important command. And so we know that Jesus gave the right answer. We know because his answer agreed with God's word given by Moses over a thousand years before Jesus came. And it's interesting, Jesus' answer pleased the one who asked this question. And he responds, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as yourself is more than all whole burned offerings and sacrifice. But secondly, Jesus' reply went beyond the original question. Jesus not only asked his question, but he went beyond it. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, Jesus answered that question, but he didn't stop there. Because that answer wasn't enough. And it's not enough to know what commandment is most important. We must also know the second most important commandment. Also, it's very important that we understand why Jesus links these two commandments together. One is more important than the other, but you cannot keep the first command 
if you don't keep the second command. Listen carefully to what Jesus said. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. Now, do you understand what Jesus is saying? He says, you mustn't think about these commands separately. They stand together as one command. Now, he doesn't say there's no commands greater than these. No, he says there is no command, singular, command greater than these. In other words, it's impossible to love God as he requires if you don't love your neighbor as yourself. Or to put it another way, as the Apostle John does, how can you love God whom you cannot see if you don't love your neighbor who you can see? It's impossible. It can't be done. The Apostle John makes this very clear in these words. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must love his brother. But the command that Jesus actually quotes from in Leviticus goes even further. In Leviticus 19 and verse 18, he says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now, even if your neighbor is someone who has treated you badly, you must love him as yourself. And if you don't do this, you don't love God as he requires. Part of loving God is to love your neighbor even if your neighbor is an enemy. And so we ask the question, why does Jesus link these two commands together and say there is no command greater than these? Because they are two quite distinct commands. One of them is more important than the other, but you can't keep one of them and not Keep the other. That's the point. And it works both ways. Break one, and you automatically break the other. But Jesus says even more than that. In the Matthew account, these words, Jesus added these further words. He said, 22 and verse 40, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, these two commandments sum up 
what God requires of every man. They sum up what God requires of each one of us here in this building this morning. Maybe you'll remember about the Pharisee who asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I wonder if you remember Jesus' answer. He said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. That's how he's going to get eternal life. Do this, and you will live. Now here's a great question. It may appear that Jesus was teaching this Pharisee that you could get to heaven by obeying God's law. That's what it might seem to teach. But no, he was teaching the very opposite. He was making it very clear. No one gets to heaven that way. And the law was never given as a way of salvation. The law was given to show us our need of salvation. The law was given to show us God's standard and to prove to us that we cannot reach it. It proves to us that none of us are good enough for God. As the Apostle Paul draws his conclusion in Romans 3.10, and that's a conclusion based on Old Testament Scripture, there is no one righteous, not even one. None of us here in this room comes up to God's standard. None of us, in any sense, loves God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and loves our neighbor as ourselves. We just don't do it. Have you loved God like that? Have you loved God like that from the moment you were born and never once broken His law? Can you say you've never had a sinful thought, spoken a sinful word, or done a sinful act. If you're honest, you simply cannot say that. And most of us would all agree, yes, no, we, 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 know, we, we know we're not perfect. We know we've fallen. We know that we're not quite right. We've all failed to reach God's standard. And the purpose of the law is to condemn us, to help us to prepare for the judgment day. And my friends, I'm very concerned about the judgment day. Because every one of us here in this room this morning is going to be there. 
every one of us is going to have to give an account of our lives. And unless we have the righteousness that God requires, we are going to be banished from God's presence forever. We are going to be put out into outer darkness. The law shows us that we need a righteousness that doesn't depend upon our obedience to God's law. And again, this is what Paul is doing as he goes through his epistle to the Romans. He clearly tells us in Romans 3 and verse 20, no human being will be justified in his sight through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what it does. The law gives the knowledge of sin. And the righteousness that God requires demands a perfect obedience to his law. And he can never accept any lesser standard. And this means that unless there is some other way that we can become righteous, there's no hope for us. And the good news is that God has provided such a way. What is this other way? Again, the Apostle Paul sums it up like this. Again in Romans 3, verse 21 to 22. But now, the righteousness of God, that is what God requires, the righteousness of God, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What we could never do, the Lord Jesus has done. And we see this very shortly. From the moment of his birth until his death on the cross, Jesus perfectly loved God, his Father, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. All through his life, that was true of Jesus. He lived the perfect life that we have failed to live. And he died the awful death that we all deserve to die. Now why did Jesus come to this world to do these things? He came to provide for people like you and me the righteousness that God requires. And the life and the death of Jesus is this righteousness of God that Paul is talking about. And God gives that righteousness as a gift to all who believe 
in Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the good news that we seek to bring to you week by week. God will accept every sinner who trusts in his Son. Sinners are saved not by works of righteousness that they have done, but by the righteous life of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. In other words, they're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the great point that Jesus makes about the law. This law is given to lead us to Jesus. It's given to show us our need of him. So that instead of trusting in things that we do, we trust wholly in Jesus and what he has done. And that is the great need of every one of us here this morning. Praise God, most of us, I trust here, believe that is our greatest need. But Jesus has one more very important point to make before he finishes. Thirdly, this reply contains a word of warning and a word of hope for the Pharisee who asked this question. Firstly, a word of warning. And this is a word of warning to all of us here this morning. The very important warning. Knowledge of the truth is not enough to save a man. The Pharisee agreed with everything Jesus said. He clearly understood that love for God and love for our neighbor were more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And yet Jesus plainly told him, you are not yet in the kingdom. You're near it, but you're not there yet. You're not far from the kingdom of God, was the words he said. And maybe Jesus is saying the same thing to someone now. You know you're a sinner. You know you need to be saved. You know you cannot be saved by your own good works. And it's good to know these things. But my friend, you can know all these things and still not be saved. The Pharisee had a far greater understanding of truth than most other Pharisees did. And Jesus recognized this man as a wise man. Jesus told him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He was near it, but he was not in it. And in a sense, that's a very dangerous position to be in. Because it's not good enough. And too many people think it's good. That's all right. I know. I know these truths. I know these truths. But it's not enough to be near the kingdom 
of God. The all-important question is, are you in the kingdom? So that's a word of warning. Now the word of hope. God uses the truth to lead us to salvation. Jesus' word of warning was also meant as a word of encouragement and a word of hope. Jesus told him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He was telling him, you could be in the kingdom of God. You're near it. You're near it. Your knowledge and your understanding of truth has brought you near it, but there's still progress to be made. You're nearly safe, but you're not safe yet. So let me give a very simple example. Think of a ship in a stormy night. You're in that ship. You're near a harbor. You can see it. But until you enter that harbor, you're still not safe. And the same is true of salvation. You must move on from the point of knowing the truth to trusting the truth. And trusting the one who is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Knowing and trusting the truth are not the same thing. And again, very simple illustration of this. You may be dying of cancer. And you know there's a great doctor. A doctor who has saved the lives of many cancer patients. You might even believe he could cure your cancer. But until you trust yourself to him and his care, you'll go on dying. And it's exactly the same with salvation. You may know in your head that Jesus has saved millions. But that won't save you. You as an individual must go to Jesus and trust him. And when you do this, you give up all other hopes of salvation. And you'll find that it is only when you trust Jesus that you really begin to love God. Only then will you no longer try to earn your salvation. You will love God, not because you want to earn your salvation. You will love God because he is your Savior. And you can be sure you're saved. And you can be sure you always will be saved. And you can be sure of this because you trust in what God says. That is what faith is. It's relying on God to save you. It's relying on what his son has done. Faith takes the promises of God seriously. 
My friend, do you know what God promises? Have you ever trusted any of these promises? Let me give what is probably the most common example. One of the best known, probably the best known verse of Scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. These are words that most, if not all of us here, are familiar with. But the great question is, do you believe them? Do you believe them? Do you? And this is a matter of life or death. There is no more important question than this. Do you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, is the only Savior that God has provided? The only one who can save you from eternal death. The only one who can give you eternal life. More than that. Have you asked him to do this for you? This is so important. And this has been brought to my attention forcibly. Just a few months ago when someone in this congregation. One Sunday night. Talking to him. The next day. He's dead. He never thought that would happen to him. Thankfully, he was one who was trusting in Jesus. He was ready to go. If you were to die before this day ends, where would you be? Where will you be? Will you be in hell or with God in heaven? Where will you be? Don't leave it for another time. I'm not just being melodramatic and saying this may be your last opportunity. It may well be. I don't know. It may be my last opportunity to plead with you. And I do plead with you. But I do more than that. I want to take you now to an invisible realm. A place that you cannot see. Somewhere in this universe, I don't know where it is, there is heaven. And seated at the right hand of God is the Lamb of God who came in the world to make salvation a reality. A man, a man like you and I, and yet he's more than a man. He's the God-man. And Jesus Christ, who is there now, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And among many other things, that simply means that what he said when he was here on earth, he still says today. And he does it by coming into the building now by the Spirit of God. And he can do what I can't do. I can't convince you of these unseen things. And you can't see them. But you can believe them because God's word says them. And Jesus says today, Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a promise. And I'm pleading with you. Take him up in that promise. Call upon him. Call upon him now. And the promise is, whoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen.